We've come to Romans chapter 4 tonight, and you know, Paul has been explaining why it's so important to understand that, that while God is just, yet he is able to justify us by his grace as a free gift. It's just a question of us believing in him that allows us to appropriate his forgiveness and especially uh, over and over that it's not by works. It's not what we do. Um, and that's a real good thing because we just aren't good enough. And the law, really ultimately, whatever law you want to use, it only pretty much condemns you, doesn't set you free. Um, now, in chapter 4, for the whole chapter, basically, he uses Abraham as an illustration of this. And there's a couple things he's trying to do. A lot of times we get the idea that somehow gears shifted when we left the Old Testament and moved into the New Testament. Now somehow God's just doing things differently than he ever had before. And that's really not the case. God's grace and and faith being the only avenue to his grace is something that was consistent throughout the Old Testament. And so Paul wants to use Abraham as an illustration just to show us that this isn't something that's inconsistent. This message of good news isn't inconsistent with what's taught in the Old Testament, far from it. It's kind of interesting that he doesn't go back to say Moses and the law, but he actually goes back to Abraham, which predates the law. Of course, the Jews would have a huge reverence and respect for Abraham as you know their forefather, and they would always talk about God being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But remember, they didn't become Israel until it was Jacob's children. And so Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were just precursors to what ultimately became the children of Israel, who eventually, after their captivity in Egypt, finally were given the law. So Paul's saying, let's back it up a bit and take a look at Abraham and see what we can learn about grace and about faith as opposed to works as it applies to Abraham. Before we go into chapter 4, though, let's go back to Genesis just to get a real quick summary of God's dealings with Abraham. And so let's go to Genesis chapter 12, which is where Abram comes on the scene and God makes a, a calling and a, and a promise to him. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's first word to Abram was, I am going to bless you and I am going to bring forth from you a lot of, a lot of people, but everyone's going to be treated 
in a way that's dependent somewhat on how they treat you and your descendants. But as I bless you, everyone in the world is ultimately going to be the recipient of my blessing. And this shows us right from the beginning, God's intention wasn't to pick certain people, the Jewish people namely, and, and to say, they are my people and I only want to love them. But it was God's intention, and this is way before the Jewish people, the children of Israel, were even in existence. God wanted to, through Abraham, bless all the nations of the world. Now, turn over a few pages to Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis 14, Abram's le- nephew Lot had got involved there in, uh, in Sodom, and uh, he was involved with some guys that ended up being um, coming and defeating them. And Abram came with all of his servants and rescued these ten kings of Sodom. And they had offered to pay Abram for what he had done. And Abram's attitude was amazing. He said, I don't want any of your stuff. I I rescued you guys for the sake of my nephew Lot, but if I'm going to be rich, God's going to make me rich. I don't want you kings to think that you made me who I am. And so um, then after that, after that, you know, great act of faith, he met up with Melchizedek, paid tithes to Melchizedek. That's a whole other story. Um, Melchizedek is either a type of Jesus Christ or he's a a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. So Abram doesn't take anything from the kings of Sodom. He, He tithes to Melchizedek. And now when we come to chapter 15, it says... After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. See, he wouldn't take anything from these heathen kings, but then he was probably having second thoughts and just going, How am I going to provide for all the people that live with me? How, what am I going to do? Um, I wonder if I made the right decision. And so God came to him and said, hey, don't worry. You made the right call. You made the right decision. I am your shield, and I'm your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, "Uh, Lord God, what will you give me? (laughs) Seeing I go childless in the air of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So Abram said, you know, you're my reward, great, but... I had something else in mind. If you're going to bless me, boy, the best way you could bless me is by giving me an heir, giving me someone that I could pass down to them everything that I have. And uh, Abram said in verse 3, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir, one of his slaves, Eliezer. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir. be your heir. Then he brought him outside, verse 5, and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. 
and verse 6, which we're going to see quoted in Romans chapter 4, and he believed in the Lord, and he, God, accounted it to him for righteousness. And so then God went on to make various, well, he actually made a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham. When they would do a covenant in those days or a contract, they would take animals and sacrifice them, split them in half, and lay them out with a path going down the middle of the, of the sacrifices that were dismembered. And the two people who were making the contract would walk together down the middle of the sacrifice, and that would be their commitment. And so God told Abram later on here in chapter 15, go ahead and sacrifice these animals, cut them up and lay them out, make some room to walk between them. And so Abram did it, preparing himself to make a deal with God, to make a covenant with God. And all day he was scaring away the birds and everything, the vultures. And, and finally, Abraham at night fell asleep. And then God came and he walked through the dismembered animals. God made a covenant with Abraham without Abraham promising anything. Only God went through. And so it was a one-sided contract that God made with Abram to confirm that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. Now, if you look over in chapter 17 of Genesis, God confirms his covenant with Abram, and uh, this is after, you know, he tried the whole, he tried to help God out by having Ishmael with Hagar, one of his wife's servants, but um, God, that wasn't God's plan, that wasn't what God wanted to do, it was Abraham and Sarah he was going to bless with a son, but it says in verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, this is probably like 14 years or so after the initial appearance, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations." No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Instead of exalted father, you'll be called, called father of a multitude. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And then he goes on down in the rest of the chapter and introduces this rite of circumcision in order to show that he and his descendants are different, that God has a special plan for them, they instituted, God instituted this rite of circumcision. Obviously, you'd have to have a lot of faith to go for an idea like that. But the ritual followed the obedience. See, Abram first put faith completely in God. And did for years. And then when God suggested something like that that was difficult, um, no problem. He did it because he had already decided that God was calling the shots. He already had exhibited faith in God. And so that's where 
circumcision comes in, and we're going to see that coming in in Romans chapter 4 as well. Now just turn over to Genesis 22. Isaac was born in Genesis chapter 21. In chapter 22, God tested Abraham's faith in a, in a way that was just unreal. Verse 1, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham got up in the morning and obeyed God took Isaac up to sacrifice him because by this time he knew Isaac was a gift from God. He had already decided that his faith was in God. He trusted God. He knew him. He knew something was up and even told Isaac when Isaac said, hey, we've got all the stuff, but there's no sacrifice. And he said, God will provide a sacrifice. God will provide himself a sacrifice. Well, Sure enough, God stopped him as he was ready to sacrifice Isaac, and uh, there was a ram in the thicket, and he performed that, and Abraham passed the test, obviously. Now, down in verse 15 of chapter 22, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so that's the basic compilation of the covenant that God made with Abram later to become Abraham. And that's the story. And all of that is the background on which Paul now builds Romans chapter 4 as he references some of these events and some of these promises. So Romans 4 verse 1, he already said in the end of chapter 3 that, that by believing in God's grace, receiving the gift of salvation, we don't do away with the law. We really establish it. We get to the point of what it was all about. And now he says, going back before the law, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? There's some, some people translate it, Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, or Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh, either one are permissible in the, in the uh, grammar of the, of the Greek here, really doesn't change a whole lot except the way that the, our new King James has it translated. It's avoiding the idea of he's only talking to descendants of Abraham. It's really kind of a silly point because ultimately makes it clear that everyone who is a child of faith is a child of Abraham because Abraham had this amazing illustration of God's faith in his life. So basically saying, okay, what's the deal with Abraham? 4, verse 2, 
If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So if, if Abraham had been justified by what he did, and certainly if he was going to compare himself to other people, who in the world had the faith of Abraham to go and offer his only son? Of course, we know in retrospect, God never was going to let Abraham offer his son. He wanted to show the kind of, of situation that it was ultimately going to take for sins to be forgiven as God himself would offer his son as a sacrifice. But Abraham, loving Isaac the way he did, having a kid when he's 100 years old, and that's the child of promise for him, what a huge faithful response it took, and what a great work. I mean, you could understand it if Abraham would brag about, hey, God told me to sacrifice my son, and I took him up there, and I was fully ready to do that. And now, looking at the Old Testament account and the Hebrew, um, it's likely that, that Isaac at this point wasn't a little boy. Most of the pictures show Isaac as being a little, you know, five-year-old toddling along. And, and uh, you know, he was probably at least a late teenager. So I heard Don McClure say one time, you know, we always talk about, man, Abraham offering his son. But if he was, like, in his late teens, maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I think it was a big deal. And if that was, if God said, you offered your son, now you're righteous, then you could make a case for saying, hey, look, um, you know, the, the uh, obedience that you have, on the basis of that, I'm going to call you a righteous man. I'm going to call you a faithful man. But then Abraham could have boasted. We don't ever hear of him boasting. It really, it's being willing to sacrifice your son isn't something that would tend to make you brag about it. You know, I think you might want to keep that one to yourself anyway because nobody's really going to understand it. But Abraham, if he was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the Scripture say, verse 3, quoting Genesis 15 that we just saw, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So it wasn't Abram's works or Abraham's works that were counted to him for righteousness. And, and the word accounted there, in the King James in this chapter, you see the word reckon used like 11 times. Um, in our translation, it usually calls it accounted. And that's a good translation. It was an account, reckon was an accounting term that was saying this was charged to him. Now he's saying Abram, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. When did Abraham become righteous? Not after his you know, ordeal with Melchizedek, where he tied to Melchizedek, where he rescued the kings of Sodom and turned down the money, not after God came and performed this covenant with the 
sacrifices, not after he circumcised himself and and the other you know men in his household, not even after he came to sacrifice his only son. Abraham was declared righteous before any of that happened because God called him and made a promise to him, and Abraham believed God, and that was accounted to him as righteousness. This is really important for us to understand, and it's why Paul makes such a, a case about it. And he kind of was baiting the Jewish people who were real legalistic and who were really wanting Christians to follow the law. And he takes them back to their father Abraham and then lets them see, wait a minute, he believed God. And that was accounted to him as righteousness, not all this other stuff that he did accounting to him as righteousness. And so now to him who works... The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, if you work and somebody pays you, that's just wages. That's not a gift. That's not grace at all. If you do something and then in response to what you do, God gives you something, that's not grace. If, if salvation is a gift from God, it has to come before you ever do for Him anything. And, of course, before you know him, you can't do anything for him anyway. Now, what this lets us know, though, is you certainly can believe. You certainly can respond and place your trust in him. That's the door that opens a relationship with God. There are some people who um, want to emphasize the totality of our depravity so much so that they say we can't even choose to accept the gift of salvation, and I, I don't see the Bible teaching that. I understand why some uh, Reformed theologians want to say that, because it works more consistently with, with their theology. But in reality, I believe the one thing we can do is to receive Him. As many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on His name, according to John chapter 1. So I don't see that, oh, by us saying, okay, I'll trust you, that we've done anything to merit salvation. In the case of Abraham, Paul didn't say, well, you know, when he did that, then, of course, then he earned something. No. Paul's saying, if it's grace, you don't do anything to get it. If you do something, it's not grace, it's wages, it's payment, but by just trusting God, Abraham didn't, that's not a work, and therefore what God gave him, his righteousness, as God declared it to be, was purely a gift from God. And we don't tend to think of the Old Testament and the relationship with God in terms of being saved by grace, but in reality, as Paul points out, that was the deal. God accounted it to Abraham for righteousness just because he had faith. In reality, every Old Testament person who was saved was saved by faith. Killing animals doesn't earn anything. A person is who's supposed to die when there's sin. And God never asked anyone to sacrifice themselves. 
They sacrificed animals, which was a, an act of faith to think somehow that could have anything to do with me and my sin when in reality, the truth is, that was only a picture of the sacrifice that would work, and that was the sacrifice of his son. So this principle in verse 4, if you work, it's a debt being paid. It's wages. If you don't work, it's grace. It's a gift. But, verse 5, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, that's a difficult verse. A lot of people would say that it would really conflict with James. A lot of people think that James and Paul were like on opposite sides battling against each other. In fact, when you look at the whole flow of what Paul is saying, not at all. James and Paul are totally consistent. Paul's point here is that righteousness being given to you by grace predates any work that you did and is not contingent on any work that you have done up to that point. It's a gift. Salvation, a relationship with God is purely a gift from God. That doesn't mean that you don't do works. And boy, when we get through, by the time we're through with Romans and Ephesians, you see God changes our lives and good things happen and we are finally able to be delivered from the grip of sin and, and we're finally able to obey in a way that's effortless on our part. But it's that in itself is just a natural response to God's grace. But his point here is to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness on the basis of his argument being that Abraham hadn't done anything when God found him there in his home country in Ur of the Chaldees, probably an idolater like everyone else around him, and yet when God spoke to him, he believed God, trusted him. And on that basis... God said, you're righteous. I'll give you my righteousness. Now, if someone doesn't ever deliver, if their life never demonstrates the, the presence of God's working, and if, if works never come and you don't ever see any fruit from someone who is saved, you got to wonder whether they're really saved. Because as we look at God's love, as we were talking about Sunday in Ephesians, as you see God's love, it does change you. There are effects that happen from it. However, we should completely separate the notion of salvation from the idea of works. Oh, works will be coming if someone's saved. But Paul's making it clear here even if they didn't do anything, salvation is still simply believing. And I'll, I'll give you a classic case, the thief on the cross. He didn't do anything good probably his whole life. He was a despicable guy who everyone was happy to go see him die. And yet, as he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, at that point, 
he was putting faith in Jesus. And Jesus said to him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Now, there's no fruit after that. The guy had no chance. He would be dead in a matter of minutes. He didn't have any chance to ever do anything, and yet I believe that we'll meet that guy in heaven. And he may be one of the happiest people in heaven that he dodged that bullet the way he did and was saved purely by grace. In some ways, he may be one of the most you know, glorious people in heaven, may be powerfully rewarded because most other people end up doing something good with their life after they're saved. And we start to think somehow that we are paying God back. That guy, he knows. He is there purely as a gift, purely out of grace, and he knows something that when we get to heaven, we will recognize also. There isn't anything that we do that gets us righteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. Righteousness comes as a gift from God. Righteousness comes because it's charged to our account by God simply because we believe him, simply because we have faith. So he's using a, a statement that's hypothetical, but if somebody doesn't work at all and only believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. I like that name for God in verse 5, him who justifies the ungodly. That's who God is. He is the one who can declare righteous people who aren't godly at all. And that's what draws us to him. We qualify. We are ungodly. There's nothing about us that's like God. And yet, you're in luck. He is the one who justifies the ungodly. And and yet he is completely just in doing that. That's what's amazing. There are a lot of people who can justify ungodly. It's something that the Bible warns us against. We can't go justifying the ungodly. For us to see someone who is walking in sin and to say, I declare them righteous. We call good evil and evil good. It's a terrible thing to do. But God can back it up. And so he sees us, and when we simply believe in him, boom, that trade is made, and he not only declares us to be righteous, he backs it up by having paid the price for our sin and by giving us righteousness. So, and, and that's his program for everyone in this world who would just believe he is the one who justifies the ungodly. Now he uses David to kind of back this up. It's like, okay, in case you're thinking Abraham is kind of just a, a unique situation, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And he quotes there the first couple of verses of Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So David states it in a negative sense. Paul turns around to the flip side of it and says, 
even David understood that God is the one who can impute righteousness. He's the one who can say it and make it so. And David recognized that there was an opportunity for righteousness to be given to you. And, and you're truly blessed if what you do that's lawless is ultimately something that God forgives. Now, verse 9 does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Good question, but he answers his question right away. Well, is this just the circumcised? Is this just... No, we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. It was accounted to him for righteousness in Genesis chapter uh, 15, and it wasn't until chapter 17 when circumcision happened. And then, of course, much later than that, before the law was given. So he's saying not only does it predate the law, it predates circumcision. Abraham was considered righteous before he was circumcised, so a physical act isn't something that is necessary for um, righteousness to be imputed in the same way that baptism. Baptism is a sign of what God has done when we put our faith in him, but baptism isn't necessary to get you saved. In fact, we call it believer's baptism because we don't think you should get baptized until you're already saved. Now, if you're already saved, you have his righteousness already, therefore baptism can't be necessary. It's something that God commands us to do, and it's a good thing as an act of obedience, even as circumcision was for Abraham and his descendants. But uh, that has nothing to do with the reality of God's righteousness. And so he's saying here, hey, remember, it was pre-circumcised Abraham who was declared righteous. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So Paul says this is good for everyone. People who aren't circumcised, no problem. You have the same faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised, you're in. You are one of his descendants. It wasn't only the circumcised that would be the recipients of the promise. All the nations of the world were going to be blessed through Abraham, but all the nations of the world were not commanded to be circumcised. So he says, if you have faith in God, you're a child of Abraham, and if you're uncircumcised, no problem. He was righteous and was uncircumcised. On the other hand, for you Jews, you got circumcised. Is there no point to that? No, that's fine too, because Abraham ended up being circumcised, and so you can relate to him in that way. But Paul saw it as a picture of the fact that God was going to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so Abraham was a picture of that, the broadness of God's mercy, the, 
the program that he would institute that would ultimately save all different kinds of people. And so he goes, if you're uncircumcised, you can look back to Abraham. If you're circumcised, you can look back to Abraham. But remember, it was his faith that allowed him to be righteous. 4, verse 13, the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It was way before the law. Abraham never saw the law at all. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. In other words, again, going back to what he was saying earlier, if following the law is what makes you righteous, then faith doesn't, you don't even need faith. You don't have to believe it all. Just follow the rules. And of course, there's a sense in which, hypothetically, that they felt, okay, if you do everything the law says, then you're righteous. But that's not true. Even if you obeyed everything in the law, there's that little issue of inheriting sin from Adam. That issue of original sin that Paul talked about earlier in Romans chapter 1. And so, basically, if you're going to try to live by the law, you're already sunk. It doesn't work. It's not there. That's not where righteousness just doesn't come by the law. And the, and, he, and the promise is no effect. Faith doesn't matter. Because, verse 15, the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. So he says, the purpose of the law is to show you that you're not perfect. The purpose of the law is to bring justification for God's judgment on people who transgress the law. So if you want to be under the law, you're already bringing condemnation on yourself. Why do you want to be under the law if its purpose was to show you that you're guilty? And, you know, there are people today um, who different groups, including Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Baptists and some others who, who really, and Jehovah's Witnesses, who, who believe that they, that we are under the law and that therefore, for instance, that we need to keep the Sabbath and that we should, many of them, that we should keep all the Old Testament dietary laws and, and observe all of the festivals and things like that. There are also some... Um, messianic uh, Jewish groups who are almost the same. We still need to, you know, follow the law, keep the law, obey the law, and all that. But Paul here makes it really clear that's not what the law was for. It wasn't there to make you good. It was to remind you that you aren't good. And every once in a while, if it makes you feel better, read the law and be condemned. But it's not going to help you. You know, the, the people who, who believe that they're keeping the Sabbath by going to church on the Sabbath, but they drive a car, thus every time you, when you start a car, every time the spark plug sparks, it lights a fire, you've already broken the law before you even drive to church. It's stupid. It's so ridiculous that I don't care what you try to do, you can't keep the law. And the scriptures declare that if you violate even one point of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. So 
why not just see the law for what it is? For me, the law proved something that I probably could have figured out without the law, that I'm a sinner, that I need help. But now for me, is it, is it relevant for me to go back and try to follow the law to once again prove that I can't do it? No. Be any more than, you know, it would be good for us to, you know, when men get saved after they come forward and accept Jesus, take them in the back room and have a rabbi waiting to clip them, you know. <laughs> it's like, no, wait, that's all something that leads up to what God wants to do. If you receive him, if you put your faith in him, you're covered. Now, you don't need the symbolism anymore. You don't need to play those games anymore. That was, as the author of Hebrews tells us, a shadow of what was to come, which was Christ. And so, you know, here he, he is again just reiterating the idea that, hey, figure out what the law is. It's something that brings wrath. It's only going to make you mad. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. But when you take the law, you've already transgressed it. Therefore, verse 16, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's kind of trumping those who are saying, well, we are Jews. And he's going, okay, well, the people who aren't Jews are of Abraham. Ugh. Abraham was the one that, of course, the children of Israel would look back to as their father. Now he's saying, no, anyone who has faith is related to Abraham, is a descendant of Abraham spiritually. He's the father of us all. And so again, it has to be of faith so that it could be according to grace so that the promise could come to all the seed. So he's going, this is the only way it could work. Salvation by grace through faith is the only possibility. Anything else would be salvation by law, and you already know you can't do that. There was no salvation by law. So nothing more than faith is involved in bringing about God's grace because if you're not saved by faith alone, then you're also not saved by grace alone. The two go together. And so he says, verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. We read that already in Genesis. Not just of one nation, but Abraham was a father of many nations. In fact, it was his kind of faith that ultimately would allow anyone from any nation to enter into a relationship with God. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. God is in the business of raising the dead. God is in the business of finding people who have absolutely no hope and then giving them hope and giving them a promise. And now in the, the rest of the section, he kind of talks about, again, Abraham and teaching us a bit about faith because 
we, we don't always know what faith is. It's hard to describe. We know that faith means to believe, but it's more than that. It's obviously more than just believing. Even the demons believe and tremble, you know, in God. Um, and so as we see what Abraham, how his faith was manifest, then we learn some of the characteristics of faith and in the rest of this section. So he says, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he says, first of all, contrary to all hope, in the flesh having no reason to believe at all, yet in hope he believed. Although the situation was impossible, although Sarah had already gone through the change of life, although Abraham was at his age, I mean, he was older than Tony Randall when he had a kid. It's like everyone would go, you are not going to be, you know, the father, you know, an exalted father, the father of many nations and all. Okay, God told you he would do that, but come on. At some point, you got to look at the situation and say, ain't going to happen. At some point, I'm sure there would be theologians who would come and say, Obviously, God wasn't literal. You know, you're not going to have any kids. But maybe there's some way in which you'll inspire some others. And as a guy without kids, um, you'll be an inspiration to everyone else. Maybe you should adopt as kind of the idea of the Ishmael thing was. Or, you know, whatever, you can make this happen. So the first thing about faith is you need a situation that's hopeless. You need a situation where there just isn't a solution. There isn't something that you can do. You've come to the end of yourself, and yet you choose to believe God when everything looks dark and against you. So often we miss this in our lives when God puts us into hopeless situations. We get into a situation where we just go, I don't see any way in the world this is ever going to get better. I don't see any way this person's ever going to change. I don't see any way that my bills are ever going to be paid. I don't see any way that a job is going to come along. I, the doctors are telling me there's just no way I'm going to die, and that's that. And we get into these situations, and so often we get so frustrated, and we just feel it's so dark. It's so hopeless. Many people, as they struggle with depression, sink into this state of feeling like there's just no way out. It's, uh, I'm never going to get better. Things are never going to improve. I'm never going to find a mate or I'm never going to... And that's... God often puts us into those situations deliberately to give us an opportunity to exercise our faith. One of the things that they do in the military when they train you to use a weapon is you need to be able to take that weapon apart and put it back together again easily. But also, 
you need to be able to do it in the dark because you may have a jam and you're out in the in the you know jungles or something it's completely dark and so as they do training for you they blindfold you or turn all the lights off and and you have to take that weapon apart and put it back together show that you know it that well it's the same thing when you learn to type you know not that you're going to be typing in the dark that much but if you really know where the keys are you'll be able to type without looking at them of course especially when a lot of times you're looking at something else while you're typing and and so when they train you to type they cover up the keys or they blindfold you or they make you look away in order for you to really learn where the keys are and anything that you want to learn how to do well it would be good to learn to do it while you're blindfolded when i taught karate we had prearranged sequences of moves um, that the asians call kata and you start in one location and then you do a sequence of of steps different ways and moves and angles and punches and kicks and you do all this stuff and if you do it right you end up right where you started that's the way it's designed but if your angles are off if your stride is off if your movement is off i've seen i've been testing black belts who were doing a kata and somehow ended up five feet away from where they started and so one of the things i would do when testing a black belt is I would always blindfold them or make them close their eyes and do their kata. And I'd mark the floor where they started and then they were completely in the dark and they better end up back on that mark or we had issues. Um, but God does the same thing to us. He wants us to walk by what? Faith, not by sight? And so, as Hebrews says... Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We want to see. We want to know. We, and, and that's why if a doctor tells us it's hopeless, we're like, oh. And then they do another test and they go, whoops, wait a minute. And then we're like, woohoo. When they say it's hopeless, we should go, woohoo. God does the impossible regularly. It's okay. But so often, God puts us in a situation of hopelessness to give us a chance to exercise our faith. And we fail usually to see it as an opportunity, being backed against a wall, being in the dark, not knowing where our next meal is going to come from or where the opportunity is coming from. And so often, we hear people say things like, if God would just do a miracle, then it would increase my faith. Miracles do not increase faith. The lack of miracles increases faith in the situation. Now, having seen God do miracles in the past should help us to increase our faith in the future. But if you don't have any evidence, then it takes, what, a greater amount of faith in order to continue to move forward. And so when you're taking your kid up to sacrifice him, and you're bringing the knife down, faith. No evidence of any rescue, and then God comes through right on time. And so often, He is doing that in our lives. And taking hope away 
so that our hope will be in him alone. God loves putting us in hopeless situations to see if we ever get it that we should have hope when we are in a hopeless situation. Because one of the things that faith is, it's trusting God, but it's also not trusting me. I am built to trust myself. Sometimes I get in a situation where it's like, I don't even trust myself anymore. Good. Because the first step to faith is not having faith in you. The next follow-up to that is recognizing that we can trust Him anyway. And so the fact that, you know, if God had told Abram when he was a young man, I'm going to give you a son, I'm going to give you a bunch of sons, I'm going to make you a multitude of nations and all this kind of stuff, and he believed it when he was young, no big deal if God did it. But by telling him he was going to do it and then delaying that which God was going to do, it put Abram in a perfect situation to have to trust God and to find out, do you really believe him? Don't miss those opportunities that God gives you in your life to believe when there's no reason to believe except that God is faithful. You'll, like, I think it was Corey Ten Boom who said, you will never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And that is profound. When you're finally, that's it, there's nothing left, now we find out, will you really trust him? And so we see this element of, of faith and contrary to hope, in hope he believed. Not being weak in faith, he didn't consider his own body. He didn't look at it and see it as something that, you know, it was just history. Verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. He, he wasn't going back and forth on it. He was actually praising God. When God told him at 100, you're going to have a kid, he's celebrating. Sarah, not so much. <laughs> she laughed. That's why they ended up naming her him Isaac, which means laughter. She wasn't quite there in the faith department. But Abraham, when he got God's promise, he praised God. Can you praise God while you're in a difficult situation? Can you praise God when you don't see how he is going to bail you out? Will you take his promise and praise him? That's a huge part of faith. And boy, Abraham showed that he didn't waver. Amazing. And verse 21, being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Faith is just saying, I know God. And I know what he says. And I know he's going to do it. And I don't care if it's looking like the odds are against him. That's just a great opportunity for God to work. It isn't being certain of the circumstances, it's being certain of the one who makes promises. I, at the Senior Pastors Conference coming up in June, I, I get to speak on a passage from 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's one of the greatest passages in the Bible. I don't, I don't know what I can add to the passage, but you, some of you might remember the old hymn that comes from the verse, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him 
against that day. Amazing verse, great hymn, by the way. But it's not, I know what, it's I know whom I have believed. See, I don't know what God's going to do, but I know him. And so because I know him, I know how much he loves me, I'm looking forward to whatever he has for me, whatever he does in me and through me. Because I know him, my focus is on him. And faith is never in circumstances. Faith isn't about, you know, Jesus talked about if you have the faith, you could move a mountain. But it's not your faith in your ability to move a mountain. Faith in any aspect is always faith in God. I know him. I know what he can do. It's not when I'm sick trying to believe the disease away, trying to believe that it's now. It's going, okay, they say I'm really sick, but I know God. <laughs> Nothing's going to surprise me with him. I'm going to praise him. I know how he is. I just know it. He's going to do something great. So I'm going to praise him ahead of time when everybody thinks I'm nuts for doing it. And then they'll go, how'd you know? And you go, because I know him. That's how. I know whom. And so that was Abram, fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Faith knows God's capabilities. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. You know, it wasn't just about Abraham. That's for us too. The same kind of faith, trusting him, is what will deliver us too. And it's the faith that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And notice this, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. That's interesting. I mean, the first part of verse 25 is easy. He was delivered up because of our offenses, okay? But he was raised because of our justification. Some, some translations try to change that because they just think that sounds weird. But that's exactly what it says. That's a good translation. Why was he raised because of our justification? Now, a lot of times we say, well, you know, on Easter we celebrate Jesus being raised from the dead because by showing that he conquered death, therefore we know that he was able to pay for our sins. But technically, theologically, it's even greater than that. It's even deeper than that, and this verse brings this out. Jesus died for our sin, okay? So it's like he was a hostage to death on our behalf. But when he died, our sins were wiped away, were gone. And there was nothing that could now hold him in death. If you have a hostage and the ransom is paid, the hostage is released. And so because he justified us, he came back from the dead. I mean, that's what Paul is saying. 
And that's, that's something that you could think about a long time and still not just get to the depths of it all. But the transaction went like this. He's dead for us. All of our sins are paid for. Now they're gone. Presto change. Oh, he's not dead anymore. Because the fact that we were justified released him from death. Kind of amazing, huh? When you think about it. But it makes perfectly good sense. Price was paid. No reason for him to be dead. Had Jesus stayed dead, as some people would suggest that he has, why is he dead? If he is dead, we're still in our sin. We can't be justified if our sins haven't been done away with. Even if they're in a box with him, they're still there. The payment hasn't been made. Justification hasn't happened. Does that make sense? So he was raised because of our justification. The, the resurrection is not only by far the greatest evidence for the truth of the Scriptures and for the reality of Jesus Christ, and you can't deny the resurrection. You have to be an idiot to deny the resurrection. Too many people saw him after he was dead. He lost too much blood to have not really been dead. He was buried. He was in the grave. How in the world could that happen? Hundreds of people saw him after his death. People who knew him well still had the scars, wasn't an impersonator. Those people were so convinced that Jesus was alive that they themselves, thousands of people, went on to give their lives willingly rather than to just admit, okay, he didn't die. He didn't rise from the dead, I mean. I mean, what could possibly cause anyone, much less hundreds of people, to just make up a story about him being alive and then die for it in some kind of a sick joke. I mean, obviously, they saw something. They believed because they saw him alive. And that not only makes Christianity different than any other religion or faith by far, and it's the only one that has something like that that's so provable. But beyond that, Easter proves that your sins and mine are forgiven by faith. Because if my sins haven't been forgiven and yours haven't been forgiven and we believe in him, then he'd still be dead. And he's not. He's alive. And so Abraham is just a beautiful picture of the truth, the reality, that it just comes down to faith. It just comes down to trusting and believing in Him instead of you, not about what you do, ever about what you do. It's simply about believing God and having it accounted to you for righteousness by grace because of what Jesus Christ did for us, and it's for everyone. It's not a Jewish thing. You know, one thing that's ironic in the whole thing is that today there are so many um, people who are biological descendants of Abraham, and yet they're following, um, sadly, not Christianity, but Islam, and have been led astray. But I don't know if you realize it, 
but there are tons of descendants of Ishmael who are Christians as well. I mean, there were times when the church of Jesus Christ was preserved by Arabs, Arab Christians. And to this day, even in the Palestinian areas, there are some strong churches that date way back. I mean, this it's not just like, okay, us American Protestants and, and the Jews against all these other people. Hey, no way, man. Abraham has descendants from all people, but especially and powerfully among those who are even biological descendants of Abraham. God does not show favoritism. It was always about everyone who would put their faith in him receiving salvation. We all get in the same way. Abraham got in that way. Every Jew who, who goes to the presence of God who will be saved, it's all that way through faith as a gift of grace. Everyone who will ever accept that truth That's the only way to become a child of God. And therefore, Abraham is all of our fathers because he proved that you could be given righteousness if you only believe without you having to do anything to earn it. And earning it would actually belie the whole process. Let's pray. Lord, this is a cool chapter and a great book. (coughs) Help us to learn from Abraham how to have faith. Help us to just believe you and trust you. It does sound too good to be true that you just hand us this salvation. We want to pay you back. Help us to remember we can't, to just stop that foolishness and to be set free, to be righteous and holy because you say so. Thank you, Lord, so much for that amazing gift of your son and his amazing work on the cross and that resurrection that came because it really was finished. You really did accomplish what you set out to accomplish the salvation of anyone who would believe. We just praise you. Lord, right now there are people in here I know who are facing hopeless situations. We all have areas of our lives where we have every reason to believe that bad things are coming. Help us to trust you, to believe in you, to glorify you and praise you even ahead of time. Knowing you as we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.